questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Before we begin, here are some extra-political news. On the 23rd of November 2021, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, in close collaboration with the Director of National Intelligence, directed the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to establish within the office of the USD the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group as a successor to the U.S. Navy's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. The AOIMSG will synchronize efforts across the department and the broader U.S. government to detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in special-use airspace and to assess and mitigate any associated threats to safety of flight and national security. Incursions by any airborne object into our SUA pose safety of flight and operations security concerns and may pose national security challenges. Tonight, we close the year with a full-spectrum and non-traditional interview. We'll discuss the latest on the DOD report to Congress regarding UAPs, the psychology of today's world, and what lies ahead, artificial intelligence, and as most of you know, music is an integral part of my life. Music is my drug. You may consider me a psychonaut. I explore many worlds while listening to music. What kind of music? Every kind. But most importantly, space music. What is space music and why it's so important to me? You may be new to this, but you'll be glad you listened. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Dr. David Luxton, PhD, known as an artist as Dave Luxton. Dave is a composer, recording artist, and producer based in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., He's a classically trained musician whose diverse compositions span multiple genres to include guitar-oriented compositions, cinematic film scores, and ambient soundscapes. As a recording artist, he's internationally known for his work in the ambient space music genre. His albums have been featured on nationally syndicated radio shows such as Hearts of Space, Musical Start Streams, and Stars End. He's also the founder of the Pacific Northwest-based Wayfair Records label. Dave is also a professor, author, and clinical psychologist. His academic work is focused on artificial intelligence and ethics. And his most recent novel, The Goldilocks Zone, explores the topic of mass mind control and sense-making in our current times. And directly from the Pacific Northwest, I'm delighted to introduce to you for the first time on Veritas, Dr. David Luxton. Hello, Dr. Luxton, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. May I call you Dave? Absolutely. By the way, that's the way I know you, Dave. And I've known you for years. You probably didn't know this until recently, but I was reading in the bio how I got to know you. It was because of our mutual friend, Ilana Freeland. She mentioned your name, and I said, is this the same Dave? Yep, that's the same Dave Luxon, and you made contact with me, and you're here today. I don't have a script. I usually don't have a script, but I usually have talking points and things to discuss. But I know for a fact that you discuss so many topics that I left it an open canvas. But before we begin, I'd like to explore you first. Tell me about you, your story, where you grew up. How did you get into music the way you are, psychology, artificial intelligence, and even UFOs? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think it really starts with my 
my childhood growing up as a into into music and wanting to be a musician. I grew up in the the northeast in New England, in New Hampshire, in Maine. Even spent some of my childhood on an island off the coast, and uh, really impacted really who who I am today. I think those experiences and living in more rural areas of New England, and then later moving into the big cities. Uh, I, I was into music at a very early age and started off really with keyboards and, and synthesizers. I think I got my first synthesizer, which was a little tiny Yamaha, I think I got for Christmas in like early 80s when I was a little kid. And um, then I got into guitar because I absolutely love rock and blues music and self-taught on guitar. Eventually started taking lessons in guitar in high school and got into doing of course, a lot of blues music, but then classical guitar. And I studied that in high school. And then when I went to college, I started off as a music major and was learning you know, music theory and music production a little bit. And then I ended up kind of taking a left turn. I went in the United States Air Force. And I was a I worked in the field of cryptology or you know, cryptography, really, in electronics and um, technology stuff, communications. And I had my music equipment everywhere I went, everywhere that I was stationed. I, I had a small little studio, my guitars, and, and stayed active in it. And played in some bands here and there over the years. And then I decided after I left active duty Air Force that I, I wanted to go back to school and eventually become a clinical psychologist. So I did go to grad school. And while I was in graduate school, I decided that, you know, I want to start my own record label and I want to shift my focus over to making electronic music or ambient music. And I'd been making music like that for a long time, but I I just didn't take it so seriously. Like, you know what, I'm going to make this into something. And I started composing and starting a little record label called Wayfarer Records, which I still have today and it's grown. And just kept producing the music that just came very natural to me. And, and it's really the genre of space ambient music. And I'd love to talk more about space ambient music, Mel, because I think, I know you're a huge fan of it. So. Yes. Um, but space music is really best defined as it sounds like it's, you know, from outer space. Well, not really. What it really means is that it's, it's music that has a lot of atmosphere and it has really flowing kind of tones and effects and it's calming and often it gets tied in with the whole out, out of space stuff. And if you if you listen to some of the earliest forms of space music, might be Lost in Space, the soundtrack to that that show. And it's um, a very exp- again expansive sound, flowing, really takes your mind kind of off off the world in a way. And I'm also inspired by more traditional ambient music, such as that of Brian Eno and. Harold Budd is one of my favorite composers who oh, yeah. passed away in the last year. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, he oh. did. Um, he, he was, um, I think he was maybe in his 80s. He, he was up there. Um, but uh, I absolutely love Harold Budd because of his, his compositions. And it's very organic. And he, he's a pianist. And so, well, By the way, did, did, did he detune his piano when he played? Because that is very captivating when I listen to Harold Budd. Yeah, you know, it's... It's very, as I said, it's very organic and natural sounding, and he he might have it slightly detuned. He did certainly did studio effects and things, where he was manipulating, you know, using the technology in a studio. But it's very natural sounding, and um, I just love his compositions. I just just get lost in those things, and it's very diverse too. He, he throws in some poetry in some of his work, and he's worked with other musicians as well. But um, over the years, as I said, I just developed this space music style. And I really think I have my own style. I don't try to emulate anyone. I just do what's natural to me. And I spend countless hours, Mel, in, in my studio composing this music and trying to do something that's unique with it, that's different, that really takes advantage of the technologies that I have with you know, with the synthesizers and analog sense and virtual analog sense and digital synthesizers and the, the digital audio workstations. But at the end of the day, I'm also a guitar player. And really that's my, my most competent instrument is, is the guitar, not, not so much the, the keyboard or piano. And so I try to work that into my compositions and I'll often use an instrument called the Ebo, which is this little device that has a battery in it. And it, you hold it over the string or 
the strings, but one at a time of an electric guitar. And it makes the string of the guitar just vibrate infinitely, kind of like a violin, like you're bowing a violin. That's why they call it the e-bow, like an electronic bow. And I, I use that quite a bit. It's just it's one of my signature instruments that I like to use. And for me, the the composing, the, the space music is, uh, people ask me, like, why do I do it? And someone said to me, well, it's probably because it's really relaxing to you to compose it. It's like, you're absolutely right. You're, you're thinking like a psychologist. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, I also have a background in clinical psychology. I did go to graduate school, and uh, I am a licensed psychologist. I'm, I'm active doing that. I like to help other people. I've been doing that my most of my whole life, but certainly my, my entire professional life. And that brings me great joy. And people ask me, well, is there a connection really between the, the psychology stuff and the music? And not really. I think that for me personally, as I said, it is kind of therapeutic, I guess, to, to compose the music. But I do feel that when I compose music and I, and I get it out there in the world and other people enjoy it, that I'm making a difference in the world for people in that way, through, it, through an, an artistic way, that somehow it makes the world a bit better. And I think that Music is the ultimate communicator, and it's universal, especially this type of music. It really has no cultural bounds, per se. I mean, it does use technology, but it really doesn't really have any specific cultural origins. I mean, some people can argue there's sub-genres of ambient music or electronic music that certainly come from different regions or parts of the world or countries and, and eras, but in general, space music is it's universal. Let's compare notes here because I'm, I'm curious to compare some of our. And by the way, I'm not a musician. I'm not trained at all, but I dabble. I dabble and I, I play the guitar, the drums. And a few years ago when I started getting strikes on YouTube because people were just lending music to me, but they are still giving me strikes because of that. I said, you know what? I don't care. So I bought a Chord Kronos 2. And that's what people hear. You don't think the, the some of the music of the intro, the outro, and that's what I do too. And a lot of space, but you know, I'm not like you. I'm just a, a figment of what I what you are. But let me just go back in time. My mother, I remember, she used to listen to classical music and and waltz dance. My dad used to put classical music before we go. Uh, we were to go to sleep. So I always had fun memories of that. But later I thought, oh, this is too boring. I'm going to get into progressive rock now. And then in the mid-1980s, I remember a store open with uh, very high-end uh, sound systems, but they also had a music section. And I went there, and I discovered the term New Age. And I'm, what is this? And Tangerine Dream, and music from Hearts of Space, and John Seri, Constance Denby, and, and a bunch of artists. And I was mesmerized because all my life, I remember in 1977, I went to the Miami Planetarium, for the first time in my life. And I just was mesmerized by the visuals and the music. But I couldn't tell who's the artist playing the, 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 the music. And it was until 10 years later that I that I found Vangelis, zero, Albedo 0 0.39. And that was my very first way of knowing. And then Tangerine Dream with Phaedra. Then uh, who else? Brian Eno with uh, music for airports, ascending and ending. Beautiful music. And then I started listening to it at night. All of a sudden, even my family and friends said to me, you've changed. You've become more successful. I was going to have a full-time job during the day and going to the university at night. I became so successful. My grades went to all 4.0s. And people were asking, what is it? And I would tell them, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. It was music. It was my drug. It was, as you say, the universal language with people. So that was my beginning in appreciation of this type of music. And then, of course, from New Age, it became space music, a subgenre of New Age. Who are your inspirations, Dave? Well, you, you mentioned a handful of them right there. Uh, certainly, as I mentioned, Brian Eno, of course, Harold Budd, um, Tangerine Dream, absolutely. In fact, I didn't get into Tangerine Dream until a little bit later. And it was a friend of mine, Chuck Van Zyl, on the on the East Coast up in Philadelphia. He, he got me onto it. And he's like, well, how come you're not listening to Tangerine Dream? And I had some of their albums, and I just didn't pay much attention to them like I should have. Um, and Vangelis, of course, I've been listening to Vangelis for a long time. Yeah, so I think those kind of big name ambient artists are certainly, or, or electronic artists, 
are inspirations to me. As I mentioned, Harold Budd probably being the number one. But you know, Mel, I listen to all types of music. I love listening to pop music, to rock music. I even listen to a bit of heavy metal music. Yep, same here. I love classical music. Absolutely. So yes, and, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I have no bounds when it comes to music. You know, there's I certainly have what I prefer in music, but I listen when I listen to music, I hear the common certainly in Western music is I hear the the common thread of what it is, regardless of the style. You know, it's I hear what it what it's doing, the 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 structure of the music and what it's conveying. And even though there's different styles, we like to put things in categories, but it's really all just expression and in its mood, right? It's it's expressing mood states and it's inducing mood in the listener and it makes you feel and it makes you think. I think one of the reasons why I like this genre so much is because every song is different. And there's something, and as you, like you, I go from classical music to heavy metal, a classic heavy metal, you know, all the way from Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, all the way to now. But right now, if you listen to pop music, not only do you have the autotune, but you have the same beats, and it's very repetitive, very... If he put on a, if, if Freddie Mercury and some of the big artists were here now, they used to write their lyrics. And right now, what do we, I don't mean to criticize current pop music, but it seems to, to be the same. What's your take on the current world of music? <laughs> Mel, you know, I've been thinking about this topic for, I don't know, 30 years when I, when I first started really getting into studying music, you know, and, and, um, I remember back then thinking the same kind of thing about the pop music that was out, about how terrible a lot of it was. Some of it was great. Some of it was terrible. And it's that way today. But you're right. I think th there is a very a sense of um, kind of a plasticness to a lot of the music that's that's pop, that it's it's just repeating the same stuff. They know what's going to sell if they just keep putting it out there and, and exposing people to it. And it doesn't – it lacks creativity and – a new way of approaching things. However, there's a lot of great pop stuff that is in that, you know, top 10 pop that is like incredibly creative, innovative and outside the box too. And they're doing some really great stuff with just the, the sounds and the tones. And so I think there's a mix, you know, I think you can find the, the gems, as I said, really in any style of music that's there. I certainly like to listen to things that I, I feel are more authentic, you know, but at the end of the day, it's what resonates with you as the individual. And that's what matters. And what I, I really recommend is for anyone out there is, is to listen to different styles of music. Certainly, if you're a composer, listen to different stuff and expose your mind to different takes on or approaches on expression through sound. And it's very inspiring to do that. And as I said before, I enjoy pretty much all styles of music, maybe some exceptions that I don't listen to that much, but I can certainly appreciate them. But um, I, what's interesting too, Mel, is that I'll often listen to more uh, pop stuff and some rock stuff more than I probably listen to ambient music. It's for me, it's more of a if I'm in the mood for ambient, I'll put it on, and I'm, probably because I'm spending so much time composing it that I'm not going to listen to it so much. But um, I think diversity in, in music is a is a great thing. I can't agree more. With what you said, it's depending on the mood. And this is why I call music my drug. And, you know, back in the old days, people were just drinking caffeine or or doing things to, to focus. I just needed music. And I knew what type of genre I needed for a specific thing that I was doing at the time. And then I discovered, You probably, I'm curious to ask you this question. Are you familiar with the tuning frequency of A432 hertz? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. You need to tell me. And are you... Because I heard that, that artists like Prince were doing it in secrecy. They di he didn't want anyone to know that his music was tuned to a 432. Have you considered tuning your music into a 432? <laughs> I love this, Mel. So let me just explain it. So I, I don't know if you've talked about this topic to your listeners I before, have. but it might help to understand. So basically, there's a standard tuning, which is the, the standard tuning in, in the Western world is 440 hertz. Um, and so it's been that way for... Uh, 1930s, I believe, and there's a connection to Germany, yes. and it can open up to some all kinds of conspiracy stuff there if you if you go there with it. But the that's the the standard that's used. However, there's some understanding that the four is it 431, right? 432. Oh, four thirty one, right? Four thirty two. Sorry, four thirty two. It's more um, 
in tune to our, our more natural state of our of our minds or bodies and that it's more maybe more calming and better for us and so a, a number of musicians have sort of played around with that where they've again tuned their instruments and mel i have played around with it i and actually have at least one piece where i've done that on purpose and on my album when the world was young there's a, a piece called schumann resonance where I've I've tuned the music to the frequency of the Schumann resonance, which isn't 432 per se, but it's a, a resonance of the earth. Yes. And it's actually measurable and it's the it's the it's an extremely low frequency, but you can I just went up, you know, brought it up in in pitch to uh, you know the, the hearing range and then wrote a piece around that just to kind of play around with this concept is is does the frequency the root frequency of the music impact the way that people perceive it, feel it, and does it have some impact on our minds? And a, a lot of modern instruments, electronic instruments, you can tune your instrument. So if you want it at 432, you can certainly do that. But uh, it's an interesting topic of, I think, in, in of scientific inquiry, but also in that uh, the world of kind of conspiracy about it as well. I've discussed this in detail for years. If, you know, people were saying, you are just a conspiracy theorist. This is impossible. I'm a musician. I've never heard of this before. And I've had people, experts come in and explain. And when I bought my core Kronos, I was thinking, I hope I can change this. And yes, indeed, it allowed me to change to 432. Um, unfortunately, the pianos, if you wanted to do that, you have to go key by key. And brass, you can't. You can with a guitar. But it's just, I did shows in the past where I had classical music tuned at 440 and then 432. And I wanted to get the the audience telling me, how did you feel? Close your eyes. How did you feel? Some of, them, some of them actually said I had tears coming down on my eyes listening to the after version, the, the tuned version to 432. Because as you said, yes, there's a conspiracy. It happened in the 1930s. It did not uh, succeed until the 1950s, but what they wanted in Nazi Germany was to change that because 432 keeps people at peace. It's the universal uh, harmony, if you will, and they didn't want people at peace during wartime. So they didn't succeed. It wasn't until the 50s that the International Philharmonic uh, Association, if you will, completely changed it, and now everybody has to tune at 440, except for the organ pipes the pipe organs in churches, which are kept at 432. So when you go to, a, say, to Mass and there's the organ playing, people feel that there's a religious experience, but it's because that organ is tuned into that frequency. That's right. It's fascinating. So now let's take a quick parenthesis and tell me about your knowledge about UAPs and what's your take on the most recent pronunciations by the Defense Department? Yeah, so this is a completely different topic here, but it's something that I've had an interest in since childhood. I think a, a lot of people get into it as as kids, the fascination with outer, outer space and, and UFOs and all that stuff. And, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire and Maine, and there's a lot of lore up there that I learned as a kid um, about UFOs and um, like the Betty and Barney Hill. And so like we lived in the same town that they were going to and, you know, been on the same road and off the coast up in Maine. I heard the stories about is actually further up north towards Canada, but there was a famous, a lot of witnesses saw something that went under the surface of the water. And I, I remember hearing about this as a kid, you know, I'm being fascinated by it. And so I've had a long standing interest in the topic and, but I'm very skeptical. I am a scientist. And so I view things from a, a scientific perspective. Uh, standing points, you know, that, okay, people um, see things that it could be just, they're making it up. It's a psychological component. Uh, they, they want some kind of gain from telling stories or they're having some kind of visual um, phenomena that they're experiencing that is not something from out of space or uh, an alien, you know, but they're, they're, they're seeing something. And, but what got really fascinating here was that last summer or this last summer, the Department of Defense did release a report about UAPs. These are unidentified, unidentified aerial phenomena. And this was a report that went to Congress. And there's a bunch of different organizations that were part of this report, such as NASA and, and some others. And there was 140 so sightings that they reference in the report. You, you can find this report online, by the way. And 
In fact, there's a link to it on my, on my website at davidluxton.com. If you go to where my books are, there's a link in there um, to it. And they did a report on what these things, because they, they've been seeing these things, the military has, has been seeing these things for a long time. But in particular, in the last you know, 15 years or so, um, 10 to 15 years maybe, and some of the most famous cases were by U.S. Navy aviators off the coast of San Diego and off the East Coast. In fact, I met uh, Commander David Fravor and interviewed him for one of my books um, a couple years ago. And he's the famous uh, commander of the, the Black Aces. These are F-18s. And uh, he himself and his wing person and his backseater and others on that ship. There's all kinds of um, shows about this now. If you turn on, you know – Discovery Channel or whatever, you're going to find th- th- this story everywhere now. Yes. But this was one of the things that was in, discussed in the report, the types of things that they saw. And, and what he saw was this thing called the Tic Tac UFO. And it was just this white object down at the surface of the water. And it was moving kind of funny. And they flew over it. And they also picked it up on, on radar systems. They picked it up on their sensors on the aircraft. There's video of this. And it is unknown what it was. There more recently was a release of a, an object that looks kind of like a, a round object that the U.S. Navy had, has video of, and they spotted it, and it appeared to go under the water. This was fairly recent. And all this stuff is um, – out of all those reports, the 140 or so reports, only one of them was debunked, and it was some kind of deflating balloon at high atmosphere. So the rest of the stuff is still unknown, and they – they offer different possibilities of categories. You know, are these things environmental effects such as ice crystals reflecting light at, at high altitude? Um, are they, you know, natural phenomena like flocks of birds? Um, are they human made like a, like I said, a balloon that's an, an, an atmosphere, you know, a, a Japanese lantern or something that's flying by, you know, things like that. And then they could also be military adversarial things or things that are being tested by other militaries or even potentially our own, but I find all this to be very um, incredible that it's come out in in this past year and how there is a lot of interest in it, but there isn't any more interest in it by the general public than there seems to be right now. I find that very surprising. Like Like our government has acknowledged, yes, there are unidentified flying objects. We don't know what they are. That in itself should be kind of scary that we don't know what they are. Now, one hypothesis, and I've thought a lot about this, is whether or not it's really just a way to kind of cover up the design of advanced military aircraft that, that's drone aircraft. And I would say that's probably in the top of my hypotheses list, is that that they're, they're testing different types of technologies, whether these are hard technologies, meaning that they are actual physical drones it's also possible that there's use of um, devices that create, you know, projections um, that can simulate an object. There's this one theory that it's possible an adversary could, you know, have, have some kind of object in the sky, whether it's one of those two categories I just described, to make our military pay attention to it, to turn on our equipment, to censor it. And so forth, so that they can capture information about our our sensors. Uh, it's a hypothesis, but I don't think that can explain all of those cases that are in that report. And I'm so fascinated with the topic. And before I even um, knew about the report, really like in 2017, because that's when the New York Times had released their big um, article about this is I started writing a book about it called The Goldilocks Zone, and it's, it's a novel. But in that novel, I really wanted to explore what is it that makes people believe what they believe and, and be, to believe it so um, passionately and then to make sense of information when all this information can be conflicting and to how to not be influenced by uh, mass psychosis. And that's really what the novel is about. And it's not so much about UFOs, even though I, I'm, you know, playing with that theme and it's central to it. People who are into UFOs and, and the whole thing will love the novel because there's all kinds of little um, Easter eggs and, and gems in there that have to do with the, the lore of UFOs and its history. But the novel really isn't about that. It's about sense making and how to question yourself 
how do you know you're not being fooled? And I had so much fun writing it because it really forced me to think about these things myself and drawing from my, my technology background, my psychology background in particular, and in my interest in the topic of, of UAPs. Uh, I had a, a lot of pleasure in writing it, and um, I hope people out there will read it because it has everything to do with everything that we're going through in this point in time. It's not science; it's science fiction, but it's not. It's about right now. So I hope you'll read it. I saw many of the reviews; they're great, really great reviews about it. And people are saying, "I think you're writing as a, a sequel." I believe it. Yes, right, because everybody's saying this is not enough. Give me more. That's exactly it. It ends. It ends in a way that keeps you like really questioning, well, what the heck, you know? And um, and that's that was the point. But it it has to have a sequel. And the thing is, Mel, it's like everything that we are going through right now in our society with this pandemic is there is a let's just say there's a very strong correlation <laughs> with that in the topic of this book. And I have to write this second part of it. And to see where it goes, but it's the thing is, Mel. It's like it's it's like it's happening in real time, <laughs> you know. The, and I I have to um, I'm kind of like riding with it, and like, well, do I do I try to write it and sort of anticipate what's going to happen, or do I just um, at the end of the day, I just have to tell the story that's that's in my mind, and that's what I'm going to do, and let these characters uh, explore this and go through this. But it's so relevant to the times that we're in, Mel. And you also wrote another one. That dealt with artificial intelligence, right? I did. That one came out uh, the year before, and that one is called Behind the Machine, and it covers the topic of ethics and technology with a plot that has to do with weather modification. And weather modification is a real thing. Yes. In fact, I just saw a report the other day about the Chinese government testing new weather modification capabilities over mass amounts of land where they basically can, for example, they can make it rain. They can do what's called cloud seeding. They can make it rain. They can use other uh, directed energy technologies to heat up part of the sky. Um, mostly it is the cloud seeding stuff. They've been doing that since at least the Vietnam War. Right. There was a, an operation called Operation Popeye where Popeye. they were – Make, basically altering the weather and the, the U.S. was. And others have talked about this too, such as Bill Gates and others about uh, can we combat climate change by using technology to actually alter the weather. So I've been very interested in that topic and I made that a central part of Behind the Machine. And in Behind the Machine, I'm really just projecting into the future to about 2034, where I think technology is going. And I make the point in the, the novel that everything that's in the novel in regards to technology is here today. And it is. Everything is that's in there is here today, only I've I've kind of ramped it up. Like, okay, now they're now the, the governments are putting it in a place and they're using it. For example, drones, these four-legged quadped drones, robots, that can walk around uh, the military has developed these and what if they put them on the streets to police and think about all the ethics that are involved in that and they are using them now they're using them in in warehouses and things to to do security and they can walk perimeters they have cameras they can they can even have a, a weapon on them they can use non-lethal weapons and my novel goes deep into that and it raises all kinds of ethics questions about the use of these technologies on humanity. And that's what the novel's about. I don't think it's a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and doing what I do, and doing research like you do. And I, I like you, I'm not a scientist, but I take a scientific approach when I see things, I hear things, I interview people. A lot of people ask me, do you believe so-and-so? And I don't believe, I either know or I don't. But I let people speak their truth and that is their truth fine but does that mean that we believe everything no we put it in the interesting bucket but when it comes to artificial intelligence and what you just said about the four-legged uh, robots i believe is general dynamics and right. i think that this is a matter of when uh, they're using this pandemic to usher in a lot of that, those technologies and you're probably and again i'm listening to you talking about whether manipulation sometimes i gauge to where the 
guest stands because sometimes guests get offended if I bring up, for example, the term chemtrails or weather manipulation. To a lot of people, that that is bunk. And as you said, all you have to do is go to Operation Popeye in Vietnam and you look in the 90s where we have our clear blue skies and all of a sudden, late 90s, things started changing to the point that even Hollywood is adding chemtrails to all movies so that when newer generations watch those movies, they think, oh, this has been happening forever. But you probably know this, that during the pandemic, they have put a huge effort in installing 5G antenna everywhere. Just think about a Terminator scenario for a moment. And I think I can, I can lean into discomfort and say, you'll relate because you write science fiction. But imagine all these 5G antennas turn on at one point in the future, release these four-legged dogs or maybe human-looking robots out there because inflation and minimum wage is going up so much that there's going to be robots in every business. And all they need to do is turn on the 5G antennas and have robots policing the streets, uh, animals detecting if you're vaccinated or not. I mean, this is this is a time where I used to think this may happen in 100 years. Not the case anymore. Probably in less than a decade, we'll see a lot of this on the streets. Yeah, Mel, I mean, it's like I said, the technology is here now. And, you know, it's it's going back to the Goldilocks zone, the, the second novel. It's about making sense of all the information and and misinformation and what's real and what's not and how do you trust your own instincts how do you trust your own eyes how do you trust the people around you how do you trust the internet <laughs> social media and all that stuff and it is incredibly a challenging time for us and it's a scary time and we've all been going through it with, certainly with this pandemic and we have seen the use of technologies um various types of technologies during the pandemic that um you know, like with any kind of technology, we they call this dual use, and it's probably more than just two, but dual use means that, okay, you design a technology for one purpose or one use, but it can have other uses, right? And the classic example I always use is just drones. So you can use a drone to film wildlife or to play in your backyard, uh, but it can also be used to, to, as a weapon, right? And as they have to, to, to kill people and to terrorize people. And so dual use so same thing with with like 5g really what that means is fifth generation so it's they're using more advanced uh, frequencies frequency ranges um and so that devices can communicate um more they'll say more efficiently and, and more interconnection of devices through this network and these you're right though mel it's these these towers went up really in 2020 and they're all over the place. They have to be closer together because they use a certain wavelength where they're not going long distance and it's more directed uh, frequencies or connections. So like the, there's almost more like a beam to your device. And it's um, regardless of where you where you want to take it, you know, there's a lot of radiation around us and more so than ever. And it's it's not impossible that these technologies can be used for bad. You're familiar with deep fakes, right? You know what deep fakes are? Absolutely. Yes. It's yes. Let me bring something up here. You might remember a few years ago, Adobe, the technology company, they had a convention and they were introducing a new piece of software. And basically when I saw that, I said, well, let me just stop for a moment. You have these faces now, technology that can create faces and video footage of somebody who doesn't even exist. Imagine false flags created that way. But take the the audio part. Adobe created this software that could take your voice or my voice or uh, Robert Plant's voice and then copy and paste it in someone else. It learns the speech patterns and let's say I'm saying testing one, two, three, and I would sound exactly like Robert Plant. Imagine the repercussions of having that out there for criminal defense, the, all the repercussions that this could have. Anyway, no one mentioned this anymore. Apparently, the government thought it was national security and took it away and said, Adobe, you do not release this to the public. What's your take on this? Yeah, this is a great example of a technology that's advanced so uh, much and the implications of, of what it, what can happen because of it. And uh, just a couple things about this. So 
um, I, I have um, a close friend who uh, one of my buddies, um, Air Force buddies, who he, he plays around with deep fake stuff. Well, he makes them himself and he has a lot of fun. Like they're, they're so incredible. Mel, he'll, he'll do stuff from major films and put himself, you know, as the characters. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, he does a great Luke Skywalker. But um, and then I'll tell you another story. I have a, a colleague who I'm not going to mention this person's name, but would refuse to um, she this person wanted to make sure that we were doing a public speaking event and wanted to make sure that the stuff that um, it's a she that she was going to say was also written down because she was concerned about future deep fake stuff where they could alter something that you're saying in the future and use it against you. And it's, it's a reality. It, this isn't, this isn't just some crappy software. I mean, this stuff is so real. Uh, and if, if you've ever seen a deep fake, you certainly look on the internet and find them on YouTube videos and things. It's incredible. And all they have to do is make something that's uh, deep, as you said, Mel, a deep fake of um, the president or the, one of the joint chiefs saying something and it broadcasts out. And, and um, next thing you know, it's world war three, you know, or, or someone on some other country, you know, they, 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 they um, fake a, a leader of another country such as North Korea or something. And then we're in war. So we need to have some checks and balances around that stuff and um, a way to authenticate what's going on. It, it's really terrifying. If It is a nightmare, Mel, if you really think about it. And how it could be used against individuals in the future. How like they could take this, this radio broadcast and take my voice or your voice and completely change what I'm saying in order to use that against us. It can certainly, and, and that would be fairly easy with just audio. But with video, you know, video is kind of the gold standard. You have someone on video saying something and there's witnesses, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's terrifying though. I was going to just mention a scenario for what they could do, but I'm not going to do that because a thought came to mind. Why did they change it to say that what you said was not a possibility, but you're actually planning something. But what if someone is innocent and they change the person's voice or, or, or the video footage to add a gun or vice versa. If someone is guilty and they alter it to make the person innocent, the implications, the legal implications on human rights, on the legal profession, on justice in general is completely turned upside down. Yeah, it's terrifying. And in many ways it harms the criminal justice system because if, if you can't authenticate and you don't have like chain of custody that you can, that's, that you can validate, then how do you know any evidence that's, that's video is real, right? We saw that recently in a very high profile case um, where there's video that was not the actual video that was shared with the other attorneys, you know? And so um, we have to be very careful about this. And it's, I put this in that category of um, be careful, you know, what you, what you wish for in technology, <laughs> You're mentioning Cal Rittenhouse, right? I that's, presume that's that, it, yeah. right? They actually took the video and reduced the the uh, the actual uh, I forgot the actual term that made it blurry. When in fact the original video was much higher quality, and that could have you know changed the outcome early on, but it didn't until the end. Right. So again, it's it's terrifying. It's it, you know science fiction. As I was saying earlier, with like my novels, you know they're. Yeah, you can call it science fiction. It's fiction, but it's actually, it's all happening right now, and it's where we're where where we're headed. And so, we really need to be paying attention to the use of this technology and the policies around it, and and how it is being used today. I think it's very important to have a, always a level of skepticism to to approach things on a scientific basis. I mean, even right now, when they say trust the science, trust the science, don't question it. But isn't science about questioning? You need to question the science. To prove your point. And the reason why I'm saying this is right now we live in a society where when you question something, you are a terrorist. You are a, you know, someone who it goes against the, the societal parameters. And it seems that a lot of people who are simply questioning and want the truth, they're the pariahs in society today. Why is it that critical thinking seems to be something in extinction lately? Well, that's certainly one way to, to control people is to have them not think, <laughs> to not actually think through something, to discredit in, in other information or alternatives or um, potentially even the truth, right? 
The flip side is that, well, okay, there's also bad actors with misinformation. But your point, your first point about science, I mean, that's a tenet of science. Like you have to be able to question it. You should be worried if you're not allowed to question something. You should be terrified, especially something that um, has such an impact on you personally and, and society as a whole. We need discourse about the science of things. We need testing alternatives. We need to hear we need to hear the voices of what people have to say about something. And certainly, you know, in science, there, there's there needs to be in a high bar of, of and, and a high bar of what we're going to accept as being, you know, the best explanation of a particular theory or an idea or a technology that we're going to use. However, you know, it, it's never perfect, right? And so there can be certainly can be multiple viewpoints about something based on one's own um, weighing the, the cons, the pros and cons, costs and benefits, and also. As technology evolves, things are happening in real time. And so more information comes out, more studies. And so sometimes it just takes time for the information to come out. But I was thinking about something earlier today. In fact, I, I wrote it down. I'm going to try to re remember exactly what it was. I'm working on another book about resilience during times of crisis, national crisis. And it's the idea that, you know, in, in the end, you know, truth, truth wins in the end. The holder of the truth shall win in the end. And that's what we should all be seeking is the truth. And that's what, again, in my novel, be, um, in my novel, The Goldilocks Zone, it's, he says he's, he's a young, the, the main protagonist, he, he's a, um, a young reporter, you know, and he, he believes himself to be a truth seeker. And that's why he got into journalism. Like he wants to, to, to seek the truth, right, and do good in the world. And people kind of play that off of him, even the people who may be lying to him. Aren't you a truth seeker? Don't you listen to the truth? You know, and they're just manipulating him or gaslighting him, manipulating him. And so that idea about the truth is what's going to win in the end. I'm holding on to that one because I think we have to be moving towards the truth. And again, Mel, anyone who does not allow you to question something, certainly in this science world, but we have, as I said, high bar. We have methodology. We, we have peer review where you have other people looking at what you've done and, and criticizing it and so forth. But even that could be corrupted, as we've seen with a lot of the academic journals where they will not publish things that are counter to a larger narrative. And that is extremely frightening. That is not good for a free society at all. Have a look at the work of Elena Freeland. She's on her third book now, and she's been nourishing us with information for, for years now. And the persecution and the censorship that people like her get from society just because they don't understand or they think it's impossible. But always, I always look at this closure as something that's going to be coming organic, organically from the ground up if it ever happens. But I always say that if you see the president of the United States, who seems to be still around the world, the person who would hold a hammer if that ever happens. But if the president of the United States, whether it's now and in a decade from now, comes and says, you know, we have a, an important release. Yes, there is extraterrestrial life and they are visiting us and we don't understand their, their capabilities. And this is why we need to unite the world militarily in order to fight that threat. If that ever happens, I personally will not believe it. I think, look at what happened in 1990, 91, with the first Gulf War, where they introduced to the population the stealth bombers. People thought they were UFOs. Imagine what they have now. And they say that technology is always running 50 years back, you know, behind, when in reality they could be a 50, 100. And if we have truly reversed engineer technology retrieved, imagine where we are now. So the Tic Tac and a lot of the other sightings, I'm not saying they might not be from somewhere else, but what if they're ours and there's a supra or exo government out there that is being used in order to unite the world and usher in a new world order? I know it sounds cliche, but what if? Yeah, you know, it's the what if. And there's, there's, there's what we know. There's what we know from history and what has happened in the past. There are the things that we can observe now. And, you know, as I – as I mentioned before, I'm writing another book about resilience in times of crisis. And really what I'm talking about in that book is about the fourth turning, which I'm sure you're, you've been following that um, Strauss and Howe's book on um, America's um, 
Day with Destiny, and it's about the the fourth turning that every there's an 80 year cycle, and every 20 years or so there's a a turning, and we're in the time of crisis now. We're at the end of the fourth turning, or we're probably right in the middle of it actually. But so I have an interest in that, and just observing history because I love history and I love American history, and I just have noticed these patterns, and we are certainly in something a big shift here, and I'm interested in, in resilience. So how do you how do you keep a calm mind? <laughs> how do you keep your mental health in a time of crisis? And I think that's so important in this time. And it's frightening when you look at what's happening around us and with technology and how it's it can be used against the people. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there, like um, Alana Freeland being one of them, that they really they see what's what's coming. They can see it and they can put, you know, connect the dots and they call it being a futurist, you know, what's coming in the future, you know, but the reality is I keep saying, Mel, like stuff is here now. And just as you said, what we think is sometime off in the future is actually being developed right now. And eventually they'll, they'll roll it out. And the stealth fighter and bomber is a great example of that, where they had been building the, the, the stealth technology in the seventies. They didn't roll it out until the nineties. So the question is, what else is, what else is coming? I remember in the late eighties reading books, about the future, megatrends. I remember one in the early 90s uh, written by Faith Popcorn, the Popcorn Report, and she talked about how we would be living in cocoons and people would be working from home. And something may happen in the future that would make people not have to go to the office, they will do it from home. And this is the way it is. When you look at the word apartment, everybody's apart. And I think one of the reasons why this happens is because they want the people separated, even right now. What are the three things they didn't allow during the pandemic last year? Going to churches, going to bars, and going to restaurants. Why? Because in the past, those were the three locations where people planned a future. A, play, a future, and I'm not going to say the word here because I don't want to sound like a terrorist, but if you have a tyrannical government, this is how you plan to release the masses the militias in order to circumvent what is happening, the, the dictatorial totalitarian regime. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's possible. Um, you know, like with anything that happens, there's, as I said before, there's like different angles of looking at something, you know, and, and weighing pros and cons. And, you know, you can put yourself and you should, you should try to put yourself in, in another person's shoes, whether it's the, the government's, you know, shoes, the leaders of a government and they're putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about the public good. Hopefully they are. And then what are the cons of that? And the thing is, Mel, it's like the, we're so polarized and you can go, you can be in one state and you have a certain reality. Like, I mean, physical state, like location, jurisdiction, you go across the state board, it's a different world. It's like what it was before. And so there's so much of it depends on what is happening in, in a local way, but they're trying to do more globally. And this is an evolving thing that we're in with the, with the pandemic. And, um, and at the end of the day, I certainly hope that people will be safe and I'm, a, I'm, I'm an advocate for public safety and, and, and mental health and, and all these things that I think we need, we should have in a, in a healthy and free society. But at the same time, we've got to be vigilant for how technology is being used and they call it the slippery slope, you know, and the slippery slope, there's a couple ways of looking at it. One is, okay, they start with some things and that can lead to, for example, things that you give up some of your freedoms, it can lead to giving up even more of them and whatever that is. The other side of it, though, is that uh, you can have hypotheses about that, but is it really going to go there? You know, and so what evidence do you have that it's really going to go there? And, you know, you have to look at history. You have to look at things that have happened in history and how technology or philosophies, perspectives were used and how populations were controlled and manipulated and the horrible things that happened when those things occurred. They've happened throughout history. They're happening now too. And now we have very dangerous technologies thrown in the mix and at a whole new level. And I think that certainly raises concern for me as someone who studies ethics and technology, someone who cares about the health of our people and someone who cares about humanity, that I, I want to see justice. I want to see 
what's right for people. I don't want to lose freedoms. I, I will voluntarily give up some freedoms for a greater good if you if it's clear to me that it is going to make a difference and that it is correct. But at the same time, to give up your freedoms for safety, uh, it, it better be um, you better think through that. You really better think through that. You know, they're saying people who give freedom for safety deserve none. But you are in the mental health profession. And you probably offer, can offer a window to what is taking place that a lot of people don't see. And I've said this from the beginning last year, that one of the things that we'll see in the future, maybe a decade from now, is all the mental stress that this caused suicides, divorces, um, child abuse. Are you seeing any of this now? Yeah, most absolutely. And you just have to look at the data for it. And there's there, the suicide thing came up early on in the pandemic about, you know, some are saying we're going to have a, a lot more of it. Some are saying, well, maybe we'll have less because we're pulling together as a society and so forth. And and what I have found uh, kind of interesting, Mel, is just the reporting of mortality rates by governments. I'm not going to go too far into this, but um, I find an interesting word. Sometimes it's quite difficult to find the information, the data from 2020. Why isn't it more obvious, uh, you know, being reported? Uh, there's often a delay in reporting of mortality, but um, I find that to be a bit odd. And also, I think um, we will see more of this in time. I think that the this you know we've been what twenty some odd months now twenty I think it's about twenty months of you know lockdowns, the masks, and everything. That the consequences of this uh, are we're going to start seeing more and more of it as time goes on here. And the impact on children has been terrible with the masks and um, the stress of all this. And uh, I really feel for for young people, that the children who are going through this. And there's talk about the impact of like infants seeing people around them, like the parents wearing masks, masks. Like not actually see, you know, the impact on their brains, the development of their brains. And uh, that's pretty scary. But um, I'm I'm hoping for the best, Mel. I really am. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. I remain optimistic. And I think perhaps one of the things that has occurred and I, the elite did not expect is that so many people who were asleep at the wheel before have wakened up. They have they have awakened to the reality that not everything they've been told is true and they are finding alternatives. And I'm all about informed consent. Anybody wants to get the shot, go ahead and do it. But informed consent and right now, when people are being pushed to get it, and if you ask the question, you know, what does it have? Well, we don't know, but we'll tell you in 75 years. Now, how can that make people comfortable? But I don't want to go there. I'm just saying that I remain optimistic. People are waking up, and hopefully they'll take charge when it comes to health, um, because you are responsible for your own health. But we had to take our one and only break, and I want you to tell the audience how to buy your books, and please listen to Dave Luxton's music. I'm telling you, if you're new to this genre, which we'll explore more, just we spent a few minutes here, but I want to take part two to dive deeper into the, I know we can't say that this has health effects because, you know, the FDA may come after us, right? But I can tell you from my own experience what he has done for me and probably for you as well, Dave, right? Sure. How can people buy the books, learn more about your work, your music, and so on? Yeah, so my books can be purchased. They can be ordered uh, in any of the major retailers like Barnes & Noble, etc. Um, Amazon.com is probably the best way, most efficient way to get a copy. You can get them on uh, paperbacks. You can also get them on Kindle devices. And you can also go to, to – I have two different websites. One is davidluxton.com, and that one you can find where my books are. And then if you go to daveluxton.com, you'll come to my music site. My music can be streamed on all of the major streaming services such as Spotify and Pandora. I also sell compact discs still. I'm still a fan of CDs. Great. And, yeah, you can find uh, my music on my website. The record label is called – Wayfarer Records, and um, please check out um, all the other artists that are on the label. I'm glad you mentioned that you're still producing CDs. I'd like to discuss this with you when we come back. This is Mel Hostelrake, my special guest today. I'm honored to have 
Dr. David Luxton, or Dave Luxton, known in the music world. Don't go anywhere. One more hour to come. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.